0: Hi everyone, welcome to Reason with Science. I'm your host Jitendra. This episode is with Dennis Noble. He is a renowned biologist, physiologist, and system theorist known for his pioneering research in the fields of cardiac physiology and systems biology. In this conversation, we talk about the topics related to evolution, including neo-Darwinism, the role of DNA as information, the use of genes as templates for evolution, the emerging fields of epigenetics, the significance of bioelectricity, and potential future directions for evolutionary research. Enjoy the conversation, share and subscribe to support the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi, Dennis. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Very pleased to talk to you, Jitenda.
0: So um, I mean, of course, I was thinking about this question, uh, what drives evolution and how we can start the conversation in a way, you know. but as being a biochemist and molecular biologist i reached to that point you know to to kind of uh Understand what is the code of life? What is that yes. uh, message? Yes, is. So, yes. so main, um, main kind of notion in the field is that it is the DNA, it is genome, yeah. which is the code yeah. of life. So, what are your views on um, this, this kind of notion of the code of life, and especially DNA being um, at the center of the the, the whole uh, theater?
1: Very, very good and very wide question. And what I'm going to say does not in any way whatsoever challenge the major discoveries of molecular biology in the 1950s and 1960s, where the work of Watson and Crick and, um, dear me, I've just forgotten her name now, the lady who got that beautiful um, really, Rosalind Franklin Rosalind Franklin there we've got it when I mentioned her in a big debate with Richard Dawkins last year there was huge enthusiasm from all the women in the audience but a few men were applauding too Yeah. <laughs> yes Rosalind Franklin um, no I don't challenge in any way the great significance of the discovery of the double helical nature of DNA and the way it is arranged in in cells and functions in cells, nor do I challenge in any way the one-way sequence um, coding, if one wants to use that word, from DNA to RNA to proteins, and no possibility of the sequence of amino acids in a protein somehow being back translated into um, uh, rna or dna and indeed it couldn't be for very good technical reason um the coding between those dna sequences and the protein amino acid sequences is redundant and therefore it's Actually, strictly speaking, impossible to go the other way um, using the sequence of amino acids to get the sequence, the exact sequence of the nucleotides. But I maintain that that's not the way in which we should expect an organism to try to direct its evolutionary reaction to changes in the environment because control mechanisms are present. Now, why are they present and how are they present? And here we just have to be a little bit technical for a moment on the exact uh, molecular biology and the process of control of the molecular biology. Usually, the strict reductionists would say that That central dogma of molecular biology from DNA coding to protein amino acid sequences is never reversed. And that is true. However, that is not the way in which organisms control what happens. That arises because of a very simple fact, which is that the DNA is not itself a self replicator, it replicates. It gets replicated, and I think that's a better expression for it, Uh, but it's not a self-replicator. And let's just go through the detailed molecular biology. The double helix, as everybody appreciated when the Central Dogma was formulated, means that each nucleotide naturally connects to its partner. (laughs) The CGAT um, coding um, is based on that. So... When the double helix unravels as it must during copying and replication, um, the each of the nucleotides that like to be together attract each other. That's a simple chemical fact. So as you have one um, thread of the double helix open, the appropriate partners will naturally chemically come in place now that's very much like crystallization crystals form uh, and grow because the molecules in solution not yet in the crystal find it easy in a kind of lock and key fashion to fit into the rest of the crystal and that's how a crystal grows now that is partly true of how DNA replicates, because as the double helix is unravelled, each of the nucleotides will bind up chemically with its partner. However, there's always an energy to that process of binding. And that means from that energy of Binding, you can calculate how often that will go wrong, or you can just simply measure how often it goes wrong. We know the answer to that. It's about one in 10,000 base pairs. Now, that is remarkable if you think about it. Before we go on to why it's not sufficient, it's remarkable because if you or I wrote a 10,000 word article, and we had only one typo in that 10,000 word article, we would be very pleased. (laughs) So would the publisher. (laughs) One tiny correction to do, that's the end of it. However, that is sufficient to come back to nature, to life, that is sufficient for small viruses. Um, A typical coronavirus of maybe twenty or 30,000 base pairs, Well, it will get the odd one or two um, changes that occur during each replication. That's incidentally why viruses uh, mutate fairly quickly. So during the coronavirus pandemic, we've seen that happening um, before our eyes. However, our, your and my uh, DNA is three billion base pairs long. Now, if you do the calculation, the difference between um, uh, 10 to the 4, 10 to the power 4, which is 10,000, and 10 to the power 9, which is a a billion, is many hundreds of thousands. In fact, it's very close to a million-fold difference. Now we come to the real key where the control comes in. What then happens, and as biochemists have beautifully revealed for us over the last 40 or 50 years, a whole army of enzymes, those are uh, chemicals that can facilitate reactions which facilitate both the cutting of a nucleotide sequence and the pasting together of a nucleotide sequence. They come in, and directed by the cell to do the job, they discover where the errors are. You can do that, of course, because in practice, what is happening is that they detect where there's a mismatch. Um, the, the T is not connected to an A, and it has, therefore, to be corrected. So they actually go in and cut it out and put another one in. I mean, it sounds absolutely unbelievable. But yet, this is what we know. Chemically, that is what happens. Now I come to the control. You see, that process is what ensures that normally, when a cell gets its DNA copied, there will be an almost exact copy in the daughter cells. In fact, the error rate then is only about 1 in 10 billion. That's a fantastic performance by nature. And we have to applaud whatever enabled this to develop, (laughs) but it's what we find. Now we come to the interesting question What was going on during the pandemic when we were invaded by coronavirus? In your body and mine and everybody else's body, something very interesting was happening. The organism's immune system had detected that a new Invader had arrived we did not have the immunoglobulin that's the protein that is necessary for grabbing and holding on to the invader and neutralizing its action that we did not have the right immunoglobulin to attack that particular virus. so what did the immune system do? It told the relevant immune system cells to stop the error correction being so completely accurate so that naturally by random errors in that initial stage of allowing the sort of crystallization, if you want to call it that, of the nucleotides to occur, so that a lot of errors were allowed to happen. That produces literally millions of new nucleotide sequences from which the immune system can choose. I use these words very um, deliberately. I know that some um, chemists and molecular biologists might bridle a little bit at the word choose, but I find it very difficult to use any other word. It literally says, "Okay." this cell has produced an immunoglobulin that grabs the virus and well what do we do we tell that cell to reproduce as fast as possible and all the other cells are told to apoptose that's the technical word for please die please go um now i think the standard evolutionary biologists, meaning those who subscribe to the modern synthesis or neo-Darwinist synthesis, would say, well, Dennis, that's an exception. Uh, it's what Richard Dawkins will say. Um, that's an exception, Dennis. That's just the immune system um, playing around with uh, a very clever mechanism. Uh, we agree uh, it's, it's, it's strange, but it is nevertheless uh, not the usual situation. Well, I looked, largely prompted by a great um, biochemist at the University of Chicago, James Shapiro, the initiator of the concept of natural genetic engineering, the idea that the organism can, as it were, go in and change its genome. He certainly has shown that it's not just the immune system that does this. What he actually showed was that bacteria do it. When a colony of bacteria are um, under stress because of, for example, an antibiotic, um, they do exactly the same thing. As a colony, they allow their genomes to mutate, and they reduce the error correction so that, just like the immune system, some of those in the colony will find a solution. And that's how we develop the resistance of bacteria to antibiotics. A big health problem, incidentally. But what he showed, in effect, was exactly the same process occurs in a colony of bacteria. Well, is it general? That's the remaining question. And through reading Shapiro's book from 2011, um, his book on evolution, I discovered And you can all easily check it in the paper published in 2001 by the team that did the first sequencing of the complete sequencing of the human genome. And what that paper in 2001 shows in figure 42 of that paper, there's the detail, is extraordinary. They looked at a comparison in different organisms, all the way from microorganisms to the human, of particular kinds of proteins. The two proteins that they looked at were transcription factors and chromatin uh, proteins. And what you find is extraordinary. As you go from the very simplest organisms to much more complex organisms, there is an accretion of domains, the proteins become longer with much more functionality, but they've not done so by the standard theory of evolution, which is tiny mutations slowly accumulating to produce a new sequence, because that would produce a random sequence. What happens is that whole domains have been moved around to produce by accretion, the much more complex proteins. So we know, therefore, that somehow organisms must have been able to move great chunks of the DNA around when under stress. Now that was discovered, believe it or not, over 80 years ago by a very clever um, botanist, Um, an American lady called Barbara McClintock. She, in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, she first published in the journal Genetics in the 1950s, she discovered, using simple microscopy, to look at the chromosomes in corn, the um, kind of corn that we eat, Uh, maize is the other word for it. In fact, it's often called Indian corn. And what she showed with simple microscopy is that exactly as the human genome sequencing found in 2001, chunks of protein have, uh, or the coding for that protein, has moved around to recombine to produce new proteins. Now, is that conceivable? Um, How could that possibly happen if everything is random and the system doesn't know where to do the cutting, for example. How do you know that you go into a particular place? (laughs) Well, we know that too. Come back to the immune system again. That phasing down of the error correction is only done in a very tiny part of the genome. In fact, it's the part of the genome that codes for the immunoglobulins. These are the proteins that enable the system to capture uh, a new virus, or a new bacterium, or anything else that attacks the organism. And in fact, it's not even um, the whole of the sequence for the immunoglobulin. When Gerald Edelman got the Nobel Prize for immunology research uh, way back about 50 years ago, when he first discovered that, it became clear, just a technical matter about immunoglobulins, there's part of the immunoglobulin structure which is straight like this. It enables the immunoglobulin to sit in a cell membrane. And it has its claws, it's a pair of pliers, if you like, sticking out like Two arms which come together, and that is exactly what happens when it attacks the virus or the bacterium. It actually neutralizes it by um, binding to it in a lock and key fashion. Now we come to the extraordinary fact: it's only that part of the immunoglobulin that is changed. That's the only part where the error correction is reduced to enable the new sequences to be produced, from which you can choose the one that works. So. What I'm explaining in this um, aspect of responding to your question is whether you look at the immune system, whether you look at bacteria responding to antibiotics, or you look at cancer cells, for example, responding to radiotherapy, I could show the same process occurring there, or chemotherapy. That's why late stage metastasis is actually very difficult to control by those processes, or whether you look at the history of how genomes have developed, which is what the Human Genome Project managed to do in 2001, you find exactly the same process occurring. That is that organisms have been able to actively go in and change the genome in functional ways. Now, that is crucial because it is forbidden by the modern synthesis or neo-Darwinism there should be no directionality to the alterations of genomes. So there it is. I hope I've explained that in very simple terms that even non-biochemists can understand. But it is actually therefore at the molecular level of analysis that as I see it, the modern synthesis has been unraveled. I don't think it can be put back together again.
0: Yeah, you did. I mean, this was really, uh, first of all, thank you for starting with this big picture view uh, in general. Um, like how we can think of um, different things, like DNA, and uh, yeah. um, how different life forms they depend on it. Uh, you you explained beautifully the replication part of it, and cool. then um, of course that like the what drives evolution in a way that you kind of explain the variation part, which uh, generally neo-Darwinist uh, people yeah. they would think that or it's accepted that it's the randomly accumulated accumulated exactly. mutations, but that's
1: not the case. What you are explaining—that the uh, unfortunately it's... not. Now I say unfortunately because you know I I actually respect the founders of the modern synthesis. They were some of the best scientists of the twentieth century. You know, if I list them, J.B.S. Haldane, absolutely brilliant man. Um, R.A. Fisher first introduced quantitative aspects into genetics. You know, fabulous. Um, Julian Huxley, a great synthesizer. Actually, I've read in detail his 1942 book, Evolution, the Modern Synthesis. I have huge respect for the accuracy, the detail. It's a work of scholarship. It's not just a popularization of the idea of the modern synthesis. I think they were all shocked when for example, Julian Huxley, but others too, Maynard Smith, J.B.S. Holden, no, he'd already, I think, passed away then, but anyway, he would have been had he seen it. They were shocked by the central dogma of molecular biology. Their reaction essentially was, oh, that means that we're right. We suppose that it was totally random, that there is no way in which the higher level of organization of an organism can in some way influence the molecular biology. So the central dogma of molecular biology now totally confirms our idea and that of August Weissman, who first proposed the idea that somehow the DNA of our sperm and egg cells is totally protected from any influence by the organism or the environment. And that's what Richard Dawkins says, of course. um, They're sort of encased in their germline. They cannot be altered. So we, as organisms, cannot in any way influence (laughs) what's passed on to later generations. Now, they were so convinced by that. Julian Huxley, in the second edition of his Uh, book, uh, Evolution, the Modern Synthesis, published in 1963, simply said, well, proteins have been dethroned, that's the word he used, they have been dethroned as the essence of life in favor of DNA. But (laughs) I don't know whether one wants to enthrone any molecule in the body, Um, but unfortunately that was a big mistake. They thought that that totally confirmed the Weismann idea, the Weissman barrier idea. That is, that the germline was totally protected from any changes in the organism. Now I come to an extraordinary fact. Darwin would never have agreed with that. I know the neo-Darwinists like to call themselves neo-Darwinists, and the emphasis is always on <laughs> the Darwin. but. Darwin did not think that. In his 1868 book, published nine years after The Origin of Species, he speculates in a very interesting way. He says, Well, if there is inheritance of acquired characteristics, that is, changes in the body influencing future generations, then it must be the case that in some way or another, the body itself communicates with the germline. We can't see whatever it is does that, so I will propose that tiny spores from cells in the body get released and get transmitted to the germline. <clears throat> He used the word gemule, gemules, spores, yes. Now that's not totally surprising. Um, when a mushroom, and he knew about mushrooms, when a, a mushroom throws its spores out, um, they are in effect very, very tiny. Little bits of life that come out of the cells of the mushroom and they then spread through the air and they they land somewhere else. And of course, they give rise to new mushrooms. So he speculated that these gemmules, as he called them, would contain all the features that enable life to be reproduced. On that, he was wrong. There are spores that come out of the cells of our body, and I'll come back to those in a moment. Uh, but they are not able to reproduce complete cells. But they do contain RNAs, DNAs, proteins, and many other metabolites. What are they? Now, you know we, oh, these are the exosomes, the extracellular vesicles uh, that have been discovered with a fantastic biochemical technique. I actually know knew, because he's passed away now, uh, Roger Chen, the person who first developed the method of labeling chemicals with fluorescent groups so that you could identify a particular RNA or DNA or a protein or whatever you were labeling by attaching something that fluoresces, yellow, green, red, mauve, purple, or whatever. You get beautiful images. Just go online and ask to look at cells fluorescing or vesicles fluorescing now recently in the last 20 or so years um, biochemists physiologists and um, similar biological scientists have realized that this is the way to bypass the limitation of light microscopy you see the problem for darwin was that a 19th century microscope could not possibly see tiny vesicles as small as what we now are released from all cells of the body. And when people first discovered this process of release using electron microscopes way back about 40 or 50 years ago, the initial idea was it's all rubbish that is pouring out from the cell. And the cell extrudes its rubbish just as we extrude our rubbish. Um, sorry for the analogy, but it's, it's true. Roughly speaking, <laughs> in fact, all organisms have to extrude rubbish. So maybe it was all rubbish. But uh, much later, it was found that uh, some of these vesicles actually contain information that other cells use, and that's a fundamental discovery. Now we come to the way that's done: the fluorescent part of the molecule sends light out and it may be yellow, red, green or whatever. Now that means that with light, even standard light microscopy, you do not have to worry about the resolution level of ordinary light microscopy because those light beams are not reflected by passing light in, diffracting it, and coming out again. <laughs> They're actually emitted by the cells themselves or the vesicles themselves. Now, guess technical here for a moment. And um, but the best way to look at it is to say that, OK, you, you get a tiny red spot. A pixel in your image comes up with a particular color. What you know then is that there is at the center of that spot, there is the particular RNA or DNA that you have labeled. And that means that you can tell that that particular RNA is in that vesicle. Now, a very clever Italian scientists, Corrado Spadafora and many others in addition to him, have been able to use all of this insight to show that RNAs that control metabolism, for example, can pass from the body to the germline. So, about four years ago, I wrote an article saying that Darwin was absolutely correct. You see, he was... He was doing the best he could, struggling with the fact that he had seen the acquisition of acquired characteristics. Um, he'd seen that sometimes the, the parents of organisms pass down from one generation to another a propensity for to a, a tendency towards a particular uh, biochemical ability or a particular structural ability. And Of course, it it is possible, and Weissman thought he could show this, that it might arise through slow accumulation of random mutations with no directionality. I don't know why Darwin did not think like that. That's an interesting question. I suspect that he was worried. I think he was worried by the fact this could sometimes happen quite quickly. He knew, for example, that hybridization in plants, just bringing two species together to produce a new type of plant, that's what rose breeders and many other plant breeders uh, do, of course, all the time. He knew that that could happen and that within a single generation, you've got a new species. So he he, I think he knew, and you can find texts in his um, Origin of Species, where he says that Evolution doesn't always go slowly. Incidentally, coming back to Julian Huxley, he also knew that. And I think that Darwin's problem was, well, somehow something must get through of the body changes. Otherwise, this wouldn't be possible. This rapid change wouldn't be possible. I think that's why he proposed his um, theory of gemmules. And it's remarkable that, what is it now, about 150 years later, um, physiologists and biochemists and cell biologists have been able to show that he was absolutely correct. I think that if he were alive today, Charles Darwin would be celebrating. Now, (laughs) why would that be the case well, go to the biggest biography of Charles Darwin, written by a man called Moore. I don't remember his first name for a moment. But anyway, it's a major biography of Darwin published in 1991. I have the whole book here in my home. Um, he shows that Darwin regarded that idea, his genial idea, as his beloved child. I'm quoting from Moore's book. He loved the idea that it might be true. Now, we can prove that because for the last 10 years of his life, from 1872 to 1882, when he passed away, he actually collaborated with physiologists, um, particularly my predecessor as a professor of physiology here in Oxford, John Burden Sanderson, and his student, a man called George Romanis. And what Darwin and Romanis did for the last 10 years of uh, Darwin's life was that Romanes would go to Down House, that is the house south of London where Darwin was living, and they tried to see whether if you hybridize different plants, taking the roots and, and, as it were, grafting them together, whether you could demonstrate the direct passage of information from one to the other, they failed. Now, you know, by the 19th century standards, this was right at the edge of what might be done, and it didn't work. But had Romanis, who passed away rather young, I'm afraid, about the age of um, 46 uh, in the late 1890s, had he lived just another 15 years he would have seen the publication by Marischofsky in uh, a Russian journal, no actually it was in a German journal, it was published in German, the first demonstration that what Darwin and Romanes were trying to do is absolutely correct. What Marischofsky showed was that if you look for the way in which plants of mitochondria in our bodies, they are called plastids in the case of plants, that those originated from the combination of of two forms of life, a type of bacterium that actually fused their bodies, their, their cells, because these are single cell organisms, And that's the origin of plastids in plants. The energy-producing process that enabled plants to capture sunlight and produce so much energy is precisely that. Later, Lynn Margulis, in about 1970, uh, demonstrated the same process in animal cells. All of our cells contain bacteria. Now it seems a strange thing to say, but our mitochondria, the energy-producing substances producing all our ATP, the originally a particular type of bacterium, which fused that was one of the big steps in evolutionary biomes like us to evolve, because otherwise it would have been impossible for enough energy to be produced by the cells to enable multicellular life forms to exist. So. I think that had Darwin's collaborator, George Romanes just lived another 15 years, he would have realized the place to look was not in big organisms like the roots of carrots and turnips or whatever they were trying to graft together. But look at microorganisms, because that's the key to how you get to multicellularity. That's organisms like you and me in the first place, because without that there would never have been the possibility for great um, uh, colonies of cells to come together to form uh, the bodies of multicellular organisms. So I think, that Darwin did his best in the last 10 years of his life to deal with this problem that worried him. How could it be that sometimes evolution is so rapid when normally the general idea came about? And I think we've totally confirmed it. I think it's a fascinating story. It's taken me about 10 years to unravel the detail of all of this, and I'm delighted to have been able to have the opportunity to to do that. Uh, When I debated this kind of question with Richard Dawkins uh, last year, happened in June of last year. That uh, at a big festival here in the United Kingdom, we were asked to debate the selfish gene and uh, the ideas to debate the ideas of, of the selfish gene. I, I'm afraid to say because I have great respect for Richard Dawkins and the brilliance of his writing. It's his fantastic writing, and as he and I both said to each other in the debate, you know, you write brilliant books, but they're wrong, <laughs> and we laughed about it, which is a good way to do things anyway i i think the what is very evident from that recording by the institute of art and ideas which organizes the big festival i think it's very clear that richard unfortunately does not know the relevant molecular biology actually i think i think it's almost appropriate that that we have a silence following that because if you if you think about the implications of all of that that effectively the spectacular discoveries of molecular biology in the 50s, 60s, 70s of the last century do not have to be denied. Nobody's saying they did not occur. They did. (laughs) They are spectacular, and it's the basis of biochemistry today. Um, That nevertheless, they don't support the view that, for example, Julian Huxley had and John Maynard Smith had, which is that it's confirmed fully um, the modern synthesis ideas. Unfortunately, that just does not happen to be true. Um, Richard Dawkins admitted that in the debate last year. He said, "Look, Dennis, if you were right, and I've been wrong. Yes, I I think that was totally correct. That if I'm right, he's been wrong for fifty years. Um, but sometimes that's how science advances. So this is, I think, not the first time by any means that science had to face major challenges and a need to." rethink the fundamentals in this case the fundamentals of uh, biological science Um, because at the beginning of the last century um, physics had to face a very similar um, challenge 1905 I think it was when Einstein first published his ideas on space-time and relativity as he called it Um, the idea that matter in the universe actually itself distorts the very basis of knowing where matter is, which is space. Um, And you can demonstrate that very easily by watching the bending of light that occurs um, by massive uh, galaxies. Um, He made that as a prediction. It was absolutely correct. Um, and similarly, um, very soon afterwards, and partly through Einstein's own work to demonstrate how electrons get passed out uh, from excited atoms, uh, quantum mechanics came in, which produced a real fundamental change in our uh, conceptions of the universe, because the The essence of quantum mechanics is that you can't completely predict everything. Um, It's got an essential stochasticity, an essential chance element right at the heart of it. Now, why do I draw that analogy? I think because there's a very similar process occurring in biology. You see, we thought, okay, there are chance changes in um, the DNA. And this can be used by natural selection. I don't deny this at all, um, to slowly uh, develop new varieties. Absolutely right. And that is um, Darwin and Wallace's original conception of the concept of natural uh, selection. The problem is whether it's entirely random or whether it's directed. and. I think we found that um, effectively there are the mechanisms by which those random changes can be directed. I've classified that recently in my publications as a form of use of chance, a use of stochasticity. I call it the harnessing of stochasticity because it's as though from a high level organization of the organism, as it were looking down on the chance events occurring at the lowest level, they can become controlled. Now, that's also a fundamental principle of physics, uh, which I'm sure Einstein would have fully understood when he formulated his um, theory of relativity. And I'm sure also that that the early quantum mechanics pioneers um, would have seen the analogy. Thermodynamics, which is the way in which big parameters like temperature, volume, pressure, (laughs) um, get to develop as a consequence of constraint, in the case of thermodynamics, by the existence of vessels within which the molecules exist, that's how you know how it can develop a particular temperature, a particular pressure, a particular volume. Just blow into a balloon. What you're doing is proving at that very point. A particular pressure develops inside the balloon, but that's not a property of individual particles. It's a property of the ensemble. And I think what we're discovering in biology is a form of directionality which is rather similar to thermodynamics. Thermodynamics gives a directionality of an interesting kind, because it means that everything is always tending towards uh, the increase in entropy of the universe. Um, That's a, a hard notion, I know, for many people to understand. The best way to look at it is that the, the process means that it goes towards increasing disorder in the universe. Um, so you might have started with the uniform situation of the Big Bang 13 and a half billion years ago. But very quickly, clumps of gas and particles uh, started to accumulate and, and produce disorder. Now. Life is interesting because it somehow disobeys that basic rule because we actually order ourselves. We are the creators of order. Life creates order. Now, it doesn't disobey the rules of thermodynamics because it does that at the expense of creating disorder outside the organism. We use uh, plants. We destroy their... Structure because we eat them, they get digested. There's the process of us creating disorder in what was a highly ordered structure in order to continue to live ourselves. So it doesn't disagree with the fundamental physics principle that order tends towards disorder in the universe as a whole, but it does mean that life is doing something really quite extraordinary. But in that case, it automatically means that we control it. We harness stochasticity. I don't think the neo Darwinists were right, therefore, to say we just experience it. There are chance variations of our um, uh, particles, the, our molecules, chance variations in the way in which DNA sequences uh, occur. But Um, it can't be controlled in any way. Well, we know from the immune system and from the other examples I've given, like bacteria hypermutating to avoid antibiotic um, uh, problems, um, we clearly do uh, use stochasticity. So in in a sense, I am fundamentally saying it's the wrong way round to think that there's just chance at the bottom and everything else is subject to that chance variation and just natural selection uh, leading to any form of development. I think it's clear now that we do use chance. (laughs) to develop the ways in which we develop. Now, when I say we use chance, I don't necessarily mean, of course, that we intentionally do so. We certainly are not intending that our immune systems <laughs> manage to produce a new immunoglobulin. We can't <laughs> ourselves, as it were, by thinking about it, <laughs> produce a new immunoglobulin. But the what you might call the natural intelligence of organisms And I'm using the word intelligence there, just as you use it for artificial intelligence. We don't think a computer is alive in the sense that we are, uh, but it has intelligence in the sense that we've given it processes by which it can develop uh, suitable reactions to the environment through, of course, our programming of of the computer. And I think there's a similar process in uh, biology As organisms have developed, they have developed intelligence. It won't always be conscious intelligence, of course. And the big question, why on earth are some of us at least conscious? I don't think I have a solution to. Uh, But um, what, what does seem to me to be absolutely clear now is that organisms do have the kind of intelligence that enables them to direct, to some degree, Um, their pathways of evolution doesn't mean to say we can do everything or anything but it means that within the constraints that we've already got we are able to some degree to direct it now for humans of course that is fundamentally and very clearly true because We, through cultural evolution, which bypasses DNA completely, we have developed the most extraordinarily rapid evolution of a species. Uh, We are, not because of our DNA, but because of our cultural evolution, we have developed way beyond the um, early Homo sapiens and the early Neanderthals way back hundreds of thousands of years ago. So we're not only harnessing charms within our bodies, we're also harnessing ideas, which also contribute to the evolutionary process. So what I'm arguing is that um, through cultural evolution, humans, and I think other organisms too, and that'll take me back to Darwin in a moment, have developed ways in which to bypass the standard evolutionary process of the evolution of DNA. Our cultural evolution, of course, is facilitated by the DNA we've got. If we didn't have an opposable thumb, we wouldn't have been able to produce all the technical inventions we have produced. But having got it, um, it wasn't through DNA changes that we... um, Produced the astounding cultural evolution of of humans. Now, come back to Darwin once again. He also realized that, and he did it in a very interesting way. It was in 1871 that he asked himself the question okay, humans can direct the evolution of, for example, dogs, cats, plants, fish, and whatever, to produce new varieties. And animals do it too. And the peahen, when it sees two or three peacocks displaying their fantastic fans, What does she do? Doesn't she choose between them? And why is the peacock producing its fantastic fan? Well, surely this must be what enables him to convince the peahen to mate with him. Um, Now, Darwin actually wrote in his 1871 book that that is deliberate. He actually says, They consciously choose their mates. Now, if they do that, they're doing exactly what cat breeders, dog breeders, fish breeders, plant breeders do all the time. So he said, well, wait a minute. That means this isn't just natural selection. (laughs) This is what I called in my 1859 book, The Origin of Species, this is artificial selection. What he was saying is that other organisms than humans can also do it. And I think he was absolutely right. And it's another feature of the modern synthesis. What Darwin was saying in effect in 1871 is that not only can humans develop culturally, Other organisms can do so too. They might not have uh, the language that we use, but watch birds, listen to them. They have a language of a kind. And they certainly have language in the sense of display. I am great, is what that peacock is saying. (laughs) So Darwin realised that his original distinction between artificial selection, choice of breeders, and natural selection that there are exceptions to that and I think he was quite right to do so but the natural um, selection idea was made as it were the only process in the modern synthesis Julian Huxley made that perfectly clear in his 1942 book Evolution the Modern Synthesis that only natural selection could account for what was happening. And I'm afraid to say, Darwin would have never (laughs) agreed with him. So on two central uh, features of the modern synthesis, uh, the impossibility of controlling mutation rate and nature and the um, idea that only natural selection could work, but that no way could artificial selection be involved. On both of those, Darwin would have fundamentally disagreed. He passed away in 1882, uh, just before August Weissmann, who introduced the idea of the Weissmann barrier to stop the influences from the body influencing the germline. So he wasn't around, as it were, to disagree with Weissmann. Uh, nor around when, of course, people like Julian Huxley and others uh, removed his idea of what he calls sexual selection. But I would call it social selection. Um, It doesn't have to be purely sexual. The organisms can interact socially and decide they cooperate with these organisms, uh, not those. You just watch uh, packs of dogs or packs of lions, prides of lions, we say, as they try to work out where they're going to attack in order to get their next bit of uh, food. Um, they're cooperating. And they do so by signaling to each other. So I, I, I think we are in the middle of a major rethink. And I know that, of course, the, the standard view, and it must be believed by, I would guess, even 99% of most biologists still, uh, and certainly, by the great majority of the public, I think we have to admit that we were misled um, all those years ago. From about 1942 onwards, when the modern synthesis was formulated, it was a brilliant idea. It was a great simplification of biology, and you know we all would love to think that things are simpler. <laughs> we don't. I, Complexity. Uh, we love to think that things are simple. Unfortunately, <clears throat> it sometimes just isn't, isn't true. And I think what we've seen in the unravelling, as I would call it, of the central dogma and its implications for evolutionary biology and the unravelling of the story of Darwin's gemules, and the unravelling of his idea of sexual selection or social selection, I think we've got reason now to go back, roughly speaking, to what Darwin was maintaining in the 1870s, that evolution has several processes by which it can occur. They are complementary. They don't oppose each other. um, But I think we need all of those processes to really understand how organisms direct (laughs) evolution.
0: I mean, first of all, I uh, listened to your conversation with uh, Richard Dawkins. So, uh, and my yeah. take was this: that e- evolution needs to evolve, uh, <laughs> because exactly. um,
1: the theory of evolution needs exactly. to evolve. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, so, one of the greatest of those, John Maynard Smith, totally agreed with that view. In his later editions of the theory of evolution, which was his great textbook. He totally admitted the symbiogenetic process that I described earlier, the coming together of two organisms to create um, a, a new kind of organism, which I think is the vindication of Darwin's original attempt to use hybridization to produce new species. So, you know, not all the modern synthesis were... Closed to the idea of new developments. And I don't think they should feel that they have to resist um, the ideas that are now clear, as <clears throat> themselves backed up by both the molecular biology and, and thinking through, particularly the genomic sequencing data. <clears throat> They've formulated the simplest hypothesis that they could produce in 1942. Uh, but we now know it's more complex, and nobody needs to feel ashamed of that. Um, I would, I would love Richard Dawkins to agree with me if he could. <laughs> <laughs> and he wouldn't. You see, it doesn't change the fact that he produced a brilliant exposition in 1976 when he wrote *The Selfish sheen of the modern synthesis viewpoint. And I can only develop what I'm developing as a physiologist looking at all of this by absorbing all of that, but then saying there's a bit more to it. And that bit more turns out to be quite a bit more. So I don't think I should be interpreted as attacking the modern synthesis people, I think they were brilliant. And I've read most of them uh, carefully, uh, even the original founders of the modern synthesis. I think they should feel, well, science moves on. And that's how it always is. And it's what the physicists had to accept at the beginning of the last century, that what we thought was a closed, um, clear exposition of the atomic basis of matter turns out to be much more uh, complex. And we still don't fully understand it because we haven't got a way of somehow integrating our ideas of quantum mechanics with the ideas of relativity. Einstein was worried about that, of course. And I think we all still are worried about the fact that we can't produce, as it were, a theory, a consistent theory of everything in physics, and that's a big problem. I think in relation to biology, though, it's time that we recognized that things have moved on and that if you unravel the molecular biological detail, what you find is the modern synthesis view is simply too simplistic. There's more to it, and I think we should recognize that
0: yeah i think here we can also take some some of the conceptual questions so um, but before that um, like the the examples that you mentioned i can also uh, kind of uh, give few more examples for example um, horizontal gene transfer in bacteria uh, that's that's completely doesn't like go from one generation to the other other generation it's simply Correct. you know Uh, that they are sharing DNA with their friends and I don't know. know,
1: When I I first saw the uh, two bacteria putting out tiny protrusions connecting together and then the protrusion contracting to bring them close together, what do they then do? Well, I say they have sex. I mean that in the strict sense that they're exchanging DNA. They they have a whale of a time. I don't know whether they're conscious that they're having a whale of a time. I'd like to think they are. Uh, but they—they they, exactly, this is the lateral transfer you're talking about. But, you know, that's exactly what our bodies are doing now. We send little particles, the vesicles, <laughs> packed with RNAs and DNAs to the germline. And now that's the same kind of lateral Um, Transfer, not, as it were, vertical transfer. Horizontal transfer, it's sometimes called, isn't it? So, yes, I think there are many other aspects of um, uh, the issues of how organisms use DNA that need to be taken into account. Um, With regard to the passage of DNA from other organisms through to pe- organisms like us, we already know that our bacteria, meaning the bacteria in us, the gut bacteria, the surface skin bacteria, are also exchanging information with us. We depend on our gut bacteriums <laughs> to an <laughs> enormous degree. They're signaling to us what we like to eat, which is what they like to digest. You know, when I first, just to give a simple story, as a student, I discovered the, when I was a student at University College London, way back in the 1950s, I discovered with some of my friends, the existence of a fantastic Indian restaurant, just near University College London. I, I I started to enjoy um, highly spiced foods. My bacteria did not initially agree. <laughs> there were a few occasions I had an extraordinary Bangalore curry and uh, was paying the price for it later. But progressively, somehow, the bacteria in me evolved and actually produced a gut uh, microbiome that love to have curries. I even cook curries myself now. So we are also, as a community of an organism, because we we cannot exist without our gut bacteria, we would not be able to digest what we digest without them. Um, So it's absolutely essential to the integrity of us as organisms that we do that, but effectively, we are directing their evolution by what we choose to eat. We're back to the peahen choosing the peacock. In this case, we're not consciously choosing the bacteria we like to have, but in effect, we are sending messages to them, which means that they have to to evolve
0: so i see that uh, so when you are saying that organisms can affect their um, evolution or can drive their evolution uh, what do you mean by an organism here just a semantic question but
1: um, okay. yes these are very difficult questions because what is a colony of bacteria <laughs> you know bacteria um, will produce films on a surface like the surface of water for example um And you might think, okay, there's several million individual bacteria there. And you observe something very interesting in the film. You look at how it grows. And it does so in a cyclic fashion. Sometimes it grows quite quickly. And then it comes to a period of stasis. And then roughly the same period of time later, it starts to grow again and stops. And then again. Then stops now the people who observed this said, "Look, something must be being communicated this it's almost like an organism, that film of bacteria, because it's operating <clears throat> as a group as though it is for the time being at least while the bacteria are all together in the film <clears throat> it's acting uh, as a a unity and we now know exactly what the message is in effect it's um it's a message that depends on ions potassium ions (laughs) coming out from some of the cells at the center when they're um hungry (laughs) triggering a potassium wave that travels through (laughs) the organisms through the fact that Transport processes in each of the bacteria and take potassium in or push potassium out cause that wave to travel to the um, edge of the film. In effect, the center of the film is communicated to the edge and saying, we are hungry, don't grow too much yet. And that's what produces the cyclic process. So you see, the question you're asking, is that film itself an organism i don't know but it but the question forces itself before us because clearly um, organisms don't exist in isolation and that's that's true of us too we operate in fact um, famously do so don't we we operate in cooperation with other humans. We would not be able individually to benefit from all the technological um, innovations that have produced modern civilization if that were not the case. So, if you ask the question, where am I? That's a deeply oriental question, of course. Um, the Indian Buddhists all those years ago had exactly that question, where is me? It's what produced their sense of no self, the Anatman idea, which is so deep into uh, oriental philosophy. Um, I think it comes also with the question, wh- where inside here, or where indeed is me? I think I'm part of me out there. <clears throat> I I don't exist independently of the um, relations I have with so many other people and indeed with other organisms than humans because um, our interrelation with dogs, with cats uh, and so on in the way in which we have developed uh, communal activities means that it gets very difficult to answer the question, What is An organism. So I think you're right to ask the question. Um, I I suppose the answer is we don't have to um, produce a definitive answer. Coming back to that bacterial film, I think it is sometimes acting like an organism in itself. But at other times the film is dispersed and the bacteria are individual on their own again. And that applies to many life cycles in other organisms, the uh, slime molds, that's single cell organisms that sometimes form like the bacterial films into the slime, which we see moving slowly uh, and feeding. It's almost like a snail moving along. Well, a snail is, of course, a proper organism, as we would define it. Um, the and the, the mold, uh, the slime mold, is not in the sense that um, during its life cycle, what happens when it, as an organism, as a big organism, it becomes hungry, it does something quite extraordinary. It behaves like a plant. It puts out a stalk. And at the top of that stalk there'll be something like uh, a mushroom cap. <laughs> what does it do? Just like mushrooms, it releases spores. What then happens is the wind carries those spores and the slime mold can inhabit then a new environment. It can find places where it's got water, where it's got food, <laughs> and then it develops again into a slime mold. So Even the same organism can go through the process of being individual, the spores and the original cells that are developed from those spores that become isolated cells that move around. But then they come together, just as bacteria do in films, to produce the period of time for which it's better to say the slime mold itself is the organism. And then when it's under stress, it goes back to the unicellular form. So I think that organisms like us that developed so well during, for example, the Cambrian explosion, as it's called, about 500 million years ago, where the different forms of multicellular life rapidly uh, diverge from each other, we... We must have originated from that kind of temporary association, which then became, as it were, permanent. We, of course, can't any longer. Um, Our cells can't be separated out and become separate organisms, but can they? You know, I come now to very interesting experiments that uh, Michael Levin has been doing. He takes cells. From a frog. And he puts them in an environment. I think he takes them from the skin cells of the frog, he cultivates them, <laughs> and they they come together and form a new kind of organism. He calls them xenobots. I don't think he invented that term, <laughs> but they then act like organisms. They start swimming through, they grow cilia to make sure they can swim. Um, so even the cells of multicellular organisms can be separated out and in his experiments become effectively a new kind of organism. So we're not totally incapable of uh, ourselves doing that, going off on their own. That's the way I think we should think about cancer. This is a very big question, and naturally, as a medical scientist, I'm fascinated by the way in which cancers develop. The standard story, of course, is the standard modern synthesis story. You've got random mutations slowly accumulating, and eventually there's an overload of mutations, and the cells start to wander off and become a cancer. Um, I've no doubt that that is also true. But the interesting thing is this. When you attack a metastatic cancerous development with radiotherapy or chemotherapy, radiotherapy if it's very isolated still, not yet metastasized to the whole body because you can direct your um, radiation directly at that um, cancer as a discrete area, or chemotherapy if of course it's metastasized too much and you've got to Try and attack the cancer in the body as a whole, then what you find is very interesting. The organism within the organism, that is the cancer, knows that it's under attack. And just like bacteria, when they're under attack by antibiotics or by radiation or whatever it might be, hypermutate what we find is that the cancer cells hypermutate. They mutate rapidly, and I think they're doing exactly like the immune system. They are, as it were, like an organism within the organism, developing towards a state in which, in the end, they control the whole organism, and then, of course, they and the organism um, die. So, in the end, they don't achieve their aim. Um, But it's... It's an interesting way of thinking about cancer because I think we would need, if that is all correct, we'd need to rethink how we look at the treatment of late-stage cancer. We may actually, while killing the cancer temporarily, we might also be producing more virulent forms that make it more difficult later, which of course is why, very often um, although a cancer seems to have been cured it will often start to to come back so i think this new way of looking at the ability of organisms to partially at least direct their own evolution produces really interesting insights into aspects of disease that we need very much to try to deal with And I was part of a a group that some years ago, two or three years ago, in fact, uh, created a new organization within the biggest cancer um, organization in the world. That's the American Association for Cancer Research, AACR. We formed a new group called the Cancer Evolution Working Group within that organization. (laughs) And... So we formed a new group within the AACR called the Cancer Evolution Working Group. And it has become one of the fastest growing groups within that very large organization. It has more than 10,000 members. It's a huge association of cancer specialists. The working group I'm referring to grew very rapidly to at least 1,000 members. So I think there are very practical applications of the new thinking that I'm proposing, and that others are too. I'm certainly not alone in these ideas. Um, And they have big practical consequences for some of the major diseases of humanity. And that takes me to another problem, which I've thought about very deeply recently, The big outcome of genomics is not what was originally envisaged. Now that we've sequenced the genomes of hundreds of thousands of humans, we haven't arrived at a new understanding of major diseases, except for what are called the genetic outliers, the diseases that are very clearly genetic in origin, cystic fibrosis and similar diseases. For those, uh, genomics uh, has succeeded very much in identifying which genes are most strongly correlated with the disease state. But for the great majority, the association levels, that is the correlation between the presence or absence of a gene and the presence or absence of a disease state is actually very low. Now, as a physiologist, I understand that perfectly. About 30 years ago, my research team working in heart physiology found a very interesting result. You could identify a protein that helps to create cardiac rhythm. So the rhythm continues about one beat per second all the way throughout life. It, that particular protein contributes we think the largest fraction of the electric current that makes that possible you can block it and when you block it the change in frequency it just continues along it's come down a little bit but it didn't depend totally on the presence or absence of that gene or that protein what that shows and this is universal in um, in uh, uh, studies of this kind of gene knockout or protein block experiments, as we would call them, is that the organism, its networks of interactions are very robust. If a particular component is missing, it just finds another way of doing the same function. And that's universally true. And I think that's why the majority of the genomics investigations have found very small correlations, association levels, as they're called, between a particular gene or its allele um, and a particular form of disease. Now, I think that's a very important finding. I applaud the genomics. Um, groups for having discovered that, but we now need to do what is necessary. That means that we cannot find the answer in genomics. We have to go to a higher level of organization and work out how those higher levels of organization are managing to keep functioning whether or not particular genes are present. In the work that I've done on this, I've shown that even a zero score between the presence or absence of a particular gene form and the disease state does not mean it's got no causation. It may simply mean that that process in the body is so robust that even when you knock it out, it continues nevertheless with no change. It can even be zero. And we know that because In mice, you can knock out what's called the clock gene. That's what enables us to be a 24-hour rhythm in many of our cell processes in the body. When there's light, you get one way, and when it's dark, it goes another way. Now, you can knock out the first gene that was found to be associated with um, 24-hour rhythm, so-called circadian rhythm, and it doesn't change the circadian rhythm. And again, I would say that doesn't mean the clock gene is not involved in the 24-hour clock. It just means that the system is beautifully robust and it can carry on even if that one is missing. But that's very important because it means that in relation to studying disease states and how to cure them, we won't get the answer from genomics alone. That's not to criticise. genomics people for producing the data by producing that data we now know it isn't the answer (laughs) but it is to say we need to go further we need to go to a different way of thinking about those very complex diseases which are now the great problem in societies that are sufficiently developed that many of us become old and the problem of longevity is a big problem it won't be solved by genomics alone, it will need another way of looking at the way of organisms resist the presence or absence of particular genes.
0: Excellent. So um, in your work, you also talk a lot about metaphors and uh, I yes. mean, we, we've been using many metaphors. So let's kind of just summarize it yes. um, in a way that um, so we started the conversation with DNA, DNA as in uh, a metaphor for genetic material. And of yes. course, we know that there is a whole chemistry, et cetera. Uh-huh. And uh, we, we've talked about, okay, that it is important. We are not saying or there is no one uh, who is claiming that DNA is not important, right? That's uh, right? It is important, but there are also other things. Uh, and, and this is what we've been talking about, what can be the other things, et cetera. And um, in, in terms of evolution, there is this prevailing view that... Uh, Evolution is driven by accumulated changes in the DNA or the genetic material, yes. uh, which again is like your argument is that it's again is not the only case or it's not the case. It's uh, it's basically the other way around. That's right. Um, and um, apart from the like, apart from the, this factor, then uh, we can go on and talk about that organisms can uh, drive evolution. This is what yeah. uh, is sure. another point. Of yeah. course, we are not clear what is an organism. It it yeah. can be a bit That's grayish right. because again, it's That's it's a right. it's a metaphor. Yeah. Uh, it it works sometimes, but there yeah. are cases where it doesn't work. Um, and I think it's it's also the case with the life, right? One one once we try to define life, it's not like we can always define it as one or zero. It's it's Absolutely. again a continuum, yeah. right? Exactly um in in the same way we we can think of multicellularity as as you described beautiful examples with bacterial biofilms etc that it, it's again uh, that continuum uh, we, we can think of us as in right. humans uh, like a zygote and, or or an embryo or we can think of a fully grown human with 200 or something di- differentiated cell cells in yes. the body etc right? right um Yes. so so um, when we think of uh, all these different factors uh, of course these these are again different scales there are metaphors we need to understand um, and what you are saying is that we've be, we have been focused a lot about genetics and and dna we need to uh, move ahead we, we need to look further now to understand disease uh, to understand longevity and all the uh, different physiological aspects of uh, of life right. that's right, right
1: exactly so and just to uh, to finish on the question of metaphor of course one of the most powerful metaphors of all time i would suggest is richard dawkins invention of the self <laughs> <laughs> Now, exactly. I, I, I enjoy discussing with Richard and we've uh, enjoyed interacting with each other for about 56 years. I was actually his thesis examiner, just amongst other things. But the important thing here is very interesting indeed. The problem with metaphors is that the question whether they are literal or just metaphors is not a simple question. Obviously, a little chemical like DNA cannot itself be selfish. That's obvious. In that sense, it's obvious that it is a metaphor. But it wasn't obvious to Richard when he first coined it. A a philosopher criticised his book in about three years after it was published, so about 1979, and referred in passing to this metaphor, the selfish gene, Richard wrote back in the same journal. It was the journal Philosophy. Um, three years after that, he said, "Well, that was no metaphor. I believe it is the literal truth." <laughs> now, what he meant, of course, was that it's as though the gene is literally selfish, because, as he would put it, <laughs> organisms are just temporary things that enable genes to survive. (laughs) So you can think of it that the gene is selfishly surviving. But then the question is, what's the only experiment you could do to prove that? Well, you measure the frequency with which that gene occurs in subsequent populations. Now, the trouble with that is fundamental. No theory can make the main and possibly the only prediction it makes, that is, the frequency of the gene in subsequent populations, be the definition of why it is what you've called it, that is, selfish. That's a complete no in any philosophical analysis of theory in science. You cannot make the central metaphor of a theory be at one and the same time a metaphor and literal. It is a difficult issue, and philosophers have argued about this a lot in relation to metaphor. Um, if If you keep switching between an idea being metaphorical and being literal, you're confusing. There is no way that can be a consistent analysis of what is happening. I think, therefore, that at a very deep philosophical level, there's something wrong with the selfish gene theory. If it had been interpreted only as metaphor, I have no quarrel with it. Yes, it is as though the genes are keeping themselves in existence and passing down the generations and manipulating organisms to enable them to do it. Taken just as metaphor, In a sense, I've no quarrel with it. But as soon as it becomes, as it were thought to be, the literal truth, which is why I think many people read his books to mean that, it becomes incorrect. So this issue of metaphor in science is actually extremely important. The particle physicists, when they use the concept of spin, for example, in describing particles, clearly do not mean that those particles are doing what we normally think of as spinning. They're using the word spin in a new way. They will readily admit that. They are giving the particles uh, what they call spin characteristics. But these particles are really waves. That's the conclusion of, of quantum mechanics. So you really can't think of it as literally spin. But there... The metaphorical concept is so different from the literal that people don't get really confused about this. When we hear particle physicists talking about that, we think, okay, they've got a different use for the word spin. Well, in relation to selfish applied to genes, we should uh, realize the same. It's really giving a different use of the word selfish and it's not the literal use of the word. That's where we get confused and that's why science needs to understand metaphors better
0: Yeah. also the definition of the gene in his uh case it's like any bit of length of the dna yeah. you know like it's not the the standard definition that we have in molecular biology nowadays
1: right? that is correct okay. uh absolutely correct because after all gene dna is often distributed around the genome and you you have the um exons, which are the bits that are translated, and they get brought together by the later stages of production of the of the protein. There's even a, a gene called DSCAM, D-S-C-A-M, that can have as many as 32,000 different ways in which the exons can be combined to produce an RNA that enables the protein to be produced. No, that's absolutely correct. We have to be careful about all of these metaphors in relation to genes
0: since we are talking about the uh, selfish gene argument um and, yes. and if, if if this can drive uh, evolution um, yep. let's let's i think uh, replace selfish gene with dna okay yep, and yep. and we we can think of because um, at the end this is what matters and the way i think of this metaphor is that it works at, at this like larger scale in a way like if you think of all the life forms and we think that dna is the uh, code script we can kind of think that okay in the like at the in this kind of transitions uh yes. it does work out right because uh evolution is um or the way we think is like the evolution of the species and uh the yes. the changes that we have at the individual level that's not Uh, in a way like it doesn't Kind of explain that, that transition to a species, right? Sure. So let's let's kind of uh, talk about the, the the major crux of the matter, like how would we reach at a at a species level transition, or how the, these kind of variations that we are thinking or talking about, be it at DNA level, because I think at DNA level we can kind of explain those transitions, but how we can explain those transition uh, transition at the organism level.
1: I think we can track the transitions, and that's where genomics is very valuable and has been particularly valuable in evolutionary biology because you can track the trees or roots of life. And that is fantastic. The way in which Carl Woese discovered the three uh, branches, the uh, archaea being one of the three branches, Uh, depended on genomics, depended on doing DNA sequences. So tracking, I totally agree with. But I once did an interesting calculation. DNA, of course, it's easy to digitise the information it's got. You've got 3 billion, and you can regard them as noughts and ones, if you wish. And then you can replace it by a digital code. And that's perfectly possible. So... You can give it so many gigabytes of information. Now, I asked the question, what about the rest of the cell, the rest of the egg cell or the sperm? You can show that it's got at least as much information as that. It depends on what resolution you uh, use to characterize the highly complex organization of a single cell. and. It's easy to show that it's at least three billion bits. Now, that is all inherited, as well as the DNA. I sometimes do in lectures. uh, I get an impression of how big a cell really is, and I imagine that a nucleotide sitting here in the nucleus in Oxford is uh, at this sort of size, the size of my fist. The edge of the cell in which it sits in the nucleus, would be way up in Scotland, the other end of the United Kingdom, a thousand miles away. Now, that gives a scale which makes one realise that if you needed to digitise the whole of that structure, of course, it depends on the resolution in which you do it. I think the resolution would be, it would have to be at least as good as to recognize the intracellular organelles, the sarcoplasmic reticulum, as we call the network inside cells and membranes, the various organelles and where they're situated. If you ask the question, how much information does that have, it easily equates with that of the DNA. So I would always argue that there are two types of information that are passed on to the next generation the genomic information and the cell information. Evolutionary biologists have recognized this for a long time. Maynard Smith, for example, often refers to cytoplasmic inheritance. Uh, He even says in his books, you know, Lamarckism, that is the idea that the rest of the organism can communicate to the germline, is not so ridiculous as it's sometimes made out because he, he realized that, the organization of the cell is itself inherited, as well as the DNA. In the debate with Richard Dawkins last year, he put this lovely idea forward. Dennis, we could recreate your genome and use it in 10,000 years to recreate you. My answer was, Which egg cell would you have to put that DNA in in order to recreate me? Would it be my mother's egg cell, in which which case it might be reasonably close to me? Or would it be something else entirely, in which case it won't? And there is the big problem. So, yes the information in dna is extremely important i regard it as a set of templates to enable proteins to be made but it's easy to calculate as i've done in my publications to show that the information in the rest of the egg cell and and in the sperm too is easily as much as that in dna yeah
0: um and um of course, it will also matter that what is
1: you in that
0: case, right? Since you were talking so, about
1: like creating uh, self. and Well, uh, I, I know the question of what is me. You see, I think I am also the product of my history. So to recreate me, you not only have to put that DNA into my mother's Excel. Unfortunately, those no longer exist. But even if they did and you try to recreate me... Unless you allowed it to live the life history that I have lived, it would not be me. Yeah.
0: So, in Laplacian sense, it'll be this uh, Laplacian demon, right? It like, like, yes. We will have to simulate each and every single particle in and the I'm universe course, to create. Certainly.
1: Yes. Which is, of course, why the. Um, uh, AI people in thinking about this. Could you ever, as it were, teletransport all the information in me to recreate me somewhere else? Well, uh, I, I think that's a pipe dream, as we say in English. I don't, I don't think it will ever happen.
0: Yeah, yeah, but as an engineer and biochemist, I am quite interested in like synthetic life, and and oh, like you- I, I kind of also uh oh. think that probably with with the tools that we have uh, at least we should be able to like start from the scratch like to to yes. think that w- how we can put simple chemistry together to create kind of a system
1: which which we can sustain in the in the no, lab conditions I, I absolutely me, i'm not opposed to that i think we must try to do that and see yeah. how we can do it and that would be a very big contribution to the question of what was the origin of life how did it emerge from non-living systems totally agree with you you need to do that uh, but you won't recreate me in the process <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly but we need a starting point that's, that's start the point. Point. Exactly, and then so. then probably we can also understand more about how the organism itself like if it's if what we create is an organism how that
1: yeah. can affect
0: the uh subsequent yeah. generations right
1: need so now i applaud that Attempt to deal with that. In fact, I'm one of the three judges in a major prize being offered for the first person who can do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, strictly speaking, it's called the prize for the genetic code, or working out how the genetic code could have arisen naturally, uh, but by a process that we recreate. So. If you manage to do it, there's 10 million there. Yeah, um, I mean that's
0: why I'm thinking that probably okay. after my PhD, I need to pursue this. You know, 10 million is the goal. <laughs> yes. Kind
1: of... Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. So
0: uh, thank you so much for giving your time. Uh, this has been great, um, and um, thank you so I, much I for it. sharing the 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 information and and the kind of ideas that you have.
1: I think we could discuss these problems for several days. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Still wouldn't be enough. Thank you so much. Take care. My pleasure. Goodbye, and goodbye for now.